Um, so we're just going to jump in tonight. I'm not going to give you, uh, there's no pop culture reference tonight. I, mean, I can't do one every week. I mean, there's just, you know, we'll, we just have to skip it sometimes and go through. You're probably like, are you okay, Ash? Is something wrong? Are you sick? Are you feeling okay? I'm fine. Um, we're just going to, we're just going to sort of jump in and move forward tonight. Um, so again, you may notice, um, that the passage that we're looking at is overlapping again of the passage that we did last week. And so we're kind of, um, jumping off, um, where we left off last week. Um, but then building on that a little bit, we're still talking about this theme of repentance. And we're still talking about um, the fact that John, um, who, is, who is called the Baptist, right? Um, I had a, we had a great little interchange the other day in, in youth. Uh, one of the kids walked up to me and asked, hey, was Jesus a Baptist? And I said, Jesus wasn't, but John was, right? And, and they didn't get it. Um, but that was okay. Um, and so... But we're t- we've been talking about John the Baptist and this message that he has of bringing um, repentance to or, or calling people to repentance. But we talked about last week how that calling of people to repentance is a forerunner. Um, it is a preparing of the field, right? That he is doing something where he is coming in and, and flattening um, the hills and raising the valleys and straightening the roads. And the picture there is the idea of he is preparing people's hearts to receive the Messiah when they come. And we talked about the only way we can do that, the only way we can rightly receive Christ is if we have first recognized our own depravity, recognize the need that we have in our lives to turn from our sin and be forgiven of those things um, with God. And so John is bringing this message of repentance. And we, and we talked a little bit at the very end of, of last week's um, message about John's kind of seemingly harsh introduction um, to the people. Like the way he's talking to people is very, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit harsh. You look there in verse 7. So he says, as, as all these crowds are coming out to the Jordan River um, to be baptized, he says to them, um, in verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then probably the next line where he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance is showing you why he is so brisk with them. Okay? Because that's the element that they're not doing. Okay? John is calling people to repentance, but, but recognize this. Okay? There is such thing as fake repentance. All right. There is such thing as, or maybe a better way to say it than fake, is maybe incomplete repentance. And I'm not just talking about blatant lying. Like, I'm not talking about fake repenting as in, I'm pretending to repent of my sin. I'm pretending to be sorry over the things that I'm, I'm not really sorry. That's not what I'm talking about. There is a kind of repentance that agrees with God about things, but then doesn't do anything about it. Okay, there's a kind of repentance that agrees with God about things, but then doesn't act on that agreement, doesn't move forward in that. Um, there are people who feel a real conviction over sin um, through the preaching of God's word or the reading of God's word or something like that. They feel a real conviction over it and actually agree with God about the sinfulness of their sin. But then they never do the necessary next thing which we see in verse 8, which is to bear fruits in keeping with that repentance. Remember, we talked about repentance is that, is that twofold thing. It is a change of mind, and it is also a turning around. And so there is, this, there is one side where we could talk about repentance being those things. It is agreeing with God and then turning to go the other way. But then we live that repentance out by bearing fruit 
in keeping with repentance, okay? And so real, or at least complete repentance, always results in a change of our lives. Behavior and the way we act and the way we think and everything else. But lots of people, in fact, everybody in some ways, right, we all do this in different ways, only practice half repentance. Our hearts are convicted, but our actions and our lifestyles never change in accordance with that. And so you could, you could kind of note all kinds of things. There's the, the, the sort of well-known and often cited phenomenon of youth retreats, right? Youth revivals, right? You go away on a weekend trip and everybody gets all amped up and they're like, man, everything's going to be different. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to go back and I'm going to be this evangelist on my campus and I'm going to, all those things, I'm going to put them away and, and, and I'm going to stop messing around with my girlfriend. I'm going to stop drinking beer and I'm going to start do, I'm going to not do any of these things, right? And then, Two weeks later, you're back in all the same habits, right? There is a real conviction over sin, but it doesn't seem to lead to life change, right? And we all probably can, can sympathize with that because I guarantee every single one of us has sat in a sermon. Um, you've read a Christian book. Um, you've listened to a Christian speaker, and you've been convicted about something. You have heard or read something and thought, that's true, and I need to live in accordance with that. And then yet now you look at your life and you go, but I never did, right? I, I remembered that thing that I said, yeah, I should do something about this. And then here we are months, years, decades down the line, and we still haven't moved on those things. If we're honest, I think something is going on kind of psychologically in us when that happens. Um, if we're honest, we find that sense of conviction, that, that feeling of guilt or regret over our sin, we actually use it to trick ourselves. We like the feeling of being convicted because then it makes us feel like, oh, I, I'm not that bad. A person, right? Like, I actually know that this is wrong, and I feel bad about doing these things. I feel sorry for my sin, and therefore, um, then I, I must be, me and God must be good on this issue, right? Because I'm, I'm, we say these kind of things to ourselves, even if, if, it's, if, it's, if it's subconsciously. But the reality is, is that's not just what God wants. God doesn't just want a recognition of sin. God wants changed lives, and so I think the case is, is we are given an example in this passage of a person who is the, almost you could say, the epitome of what's going on here. And you only learn about it completely by looking at some of the other Gospels, but that is this character of Herod. Um, Herod becomes an example for us of what false repentance looks like. Now, to so the end of this passage that, that Natalie read a minute ago, um, this is Herod, who is Herod that's called Antipas, okay? Um, not Herod the Great, who is the Herod that, that was there when Jesus was born and, and killed the babies in Bethlehem. This is his son. There's a bunch of different Herods, right? There's another Herod named Agrippa that, that we see later who's engaged with Paul at a different time. So it gets a little confusing for us, but this is Herod Jr., okay? Not Herod the Great, and so Mark, the Gospel of Mark, gives us a little more insight into Herod's character as he's mentioned here. So in Mark it says this, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Okay, so Herod had basically stolen his brother's wife, and because he was higher up on the pecking order in authority, uh, that just happened. Okay? Um, verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. 
And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, or you could write there, respected John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed or greatly put at a loss, and yet he heard him gladly. Okay, so this is what we find out about the character of Herod, right? Herod is a dude who is sinning in this particular way. Um, he has taken his brother's wife. He is, he is committing adultery in a, in, a, in a constant kind of fashion, right? And yet, he likes having his toes stepped on by John when he preaches, right? John is preaching this message of, hey, Herod, you need to repent of your sin. You need to put away your, your brother's wife and, and send her back to your brother. He's, he's rebuking Herod in his actions, and yet Herod seems to enjoy listening to John, right? Um, he actually protects John. He respects John as a righteous man and a holy man. He listens to that word, but then it also tells us that when he heard John preach, he was perplexed. He was at a loss, okay? Why was he at a loss? Well, the reason is because he didn't want to give up Herodias. Like, he, he heard this message of conviction, and yet he was unwilling to do what the repentance would have led him to. And so I think it could probably be said that he agreed with John that what was going on was wrong, and yet he was unwilling to fully repent and, and, and put away his brother's wife. And so I think the case is, is that we all struggle with that, honestly, um, in all kinds of different ways. And honestly, that's part of the reason why Jesus has not only died a perfect death for us, but he's lived a perfect life for us, right? He had to have done that because if he didn't, we would have no hope. We would never repent fully and rightly. Um, we would have never done these things to the level that would be acceptable to God. And so Christ has done those things in our place. And yet, John is reminding us that that's what God is shooting at, right? God does not look to us and say, I want you to feel bad over your sin. I want you to acknowledge your sin, but then... Be cool. Don't worry about it because Jesus died for you and it's all going to be fine. That's not exactly what he says. That is the truth. And yet, he doesn't want us to just say, no, I'm no good. He wants us to go, I'm a sinner and I need to repent and actually fully repent and follow Christ in my life and live out this thing and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so, again, he, he ties that into this idea that we talked about last week of him saying, man, don't act like, um, in verse 8, don't act like just because Abraham is your father that that makes you good with God. That is not what is the necessary element of this thing. What is necessary is that you turn from your sin, and then we're going to eventually see turn to Christ. So real, complete, if you want to use that word, repentance bears fruit. All right? And it says fruit in keeping with repentance, right? It is, it is actions that are in line with this new attitude, that are an expected response that come out of this new attitude of our heart, this new orientation of our heart. And so, again, we kind of talked about it a little bit last week, but repentance has various elements of it. Like it looks like a couple of different things going on in our lives. For one, repentance looks like bankruptcy of spirit, and so we're actually talking about this with the youth um, right now as we go through the Beatitudes. Repentance looks like bankruptcy of spirit. It recognizes that spiritually, uh, in terms of our spiritual life and our spiritual standing before God, you are bankrupt, right? The word is tokos in, in the Greek, right? You are destitute poor when it comes to your, um, 
your merit before God, right? And then that leads us to contrition. It leads us to be sorry, sorry over our sin. It leads us to change your mind about things and change your direction about things, to agree with God and align with God about how we understand the way the world is, all right? And in all of that, there's this new posture that we have. And so, so the Beatitudes talk about this idea of the meek person will inherit the earth, right? You, you, you put on this new kind of orientation to the world where you are not looking as, at the world as if you are better than them and higher than them and, and to be served by the world. Instead, you're looking at the world saying, no, I'm, I'm the same as everybody else, right? I am I'm even, even below them, right? I'm going to put myself in a position where I am serving them instead of they serve they serving me. But that repentance, that, that, all those characteristics that kind of come together in repentance, um, they've got to do something, right? They've got to act after, after that. Something has to happen, or at least it's supposed to happen. They're supposed to be lived out in this new agreement, this new direction, this new posture. And we're supposed to bear fruit in those things, right? And so, so what we kind of notice here is we might ask the question, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? So in some cases, it would be super obvious, right? If the sin is specific, then, keep, then bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is going to be very obvious. So if you've got a problem and you're a liar, okay, then bearing fruit in keeping with repentance doesn't just mean agreeing with God that you are a liar and agreeing with God that you lying is wrong, but it would mean start telling the truth, right? It would mean start changing um, in a way that is not just in agreement with your sin of what the sin is, but actually positively living out what the truth of that is. And so if the sin is specific, then, it's, then sometimes it's easier to kind of zoom in and say, yeah, I know what I need to do. You know, I need to stop cheating on my wife. I need to stop stealing from my company. I need to stop um, running down the people around us with my words or whatever, right? I need to start doing these things, but there's also, I think, a more broad kind of attitude, a general kind of um, way that we engage the world, you could say, that comes out of this attitude of repentance. And I think it's what we see in this passage as these various groups come to John and say, what must I do? Like, what am I supposed to do? You are calling us to repentance. You're doing this baptism for repentance. What should I do? Okay, and so we see these three different groups of people come. The first one, it says the crowds came, right? So we're just assuming these are general people in, in, in the community. And so it says in verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share one with who has, share one. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Okay, so what does that mean? That means live generously. It means live in contentment. It means stop thinking of resources as things to be hoarded um, and start thinking of ways that you can share um, with other people. Okay, now, again, we have to do that wisely, right? We don't do stupid generosity. And honestly, the church does stupid generosity a lot of times, right? Um, I got to hear um, Vody Bauckham this week. Um, he was speaking at First Baptist Alcoa, and he did like a little pastor's luncheon thing at First Baptist Alcoa, and I went over there, and he mentioned a little thing that I was not aware of. So y'all all remember Tom's, right? Everybody remember Tom's, right? What was Tom's big selling thing, their, their, their little gimmick? It was the idea that every time you buy a pair of shoes, they give a pair of shoes to someone in the third world, right? And that was their, that was their big thing. Except guess what happened, which I was not aware of this. 
in many countries where Tom's was giving shoes away, it ruined the shoemaking, shoe selling, and shoe parts industries to the point where those industries do not exist in those countries anymore, right? So people who had for generations been making shoes and selling shoes or whatever all of a sudden were put out of business, and then eventually Tom's went to another country, but now that industry was gone in those places, right? Um, that's that's an, a picture of toxic charity, right? That's a picture of, of ways that we think we're doing a good thing, but we end up in the long run actually hurting people, right? And so we're not talking about doing dumb um, charity, right? We're talking about giving in ways that is that that are, are wise and, and empowers people to um, um, to actually be to, to be helped in the future and to be um, more able to to help themselves and different things like that. But at the same time, that's not always just the the presenting issue, right? A lot of times, it's not that we're going. Well, I'm not going to give because I can't be sure that this is going to be done wisely. Sometimes we're just not giving because we're too busy keeping those things for ourselves. We're not thinking in terms of those things, right? And so having a repentant heart in a broad thing, in a broad sense, um, should make us love kindness, right? It should make us want to bless people with the things we have because repentance recognizes the great kindness that we have already been shown, right? That Christ has shown us a kind of kindness that we did not deserve, and so now is our opportunity to share that kindness with other people, okay? So that's the first thing that we notice is this, this sort of love-kindness kind of mentality, okay? Then another group come, the tax collectors come. In verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. So you probably know that tax collectors were tasked with raising money for the Roman Empire, right? But at the end of the day, they could claim that the amount that was owed was anything. And so they could extort people and say, well, you owe 10 denarii, but really the government's only going to take seven, but I'm going to keep that extra three or whatever. Um, and so you could become very wealthy being a tax collector because basically any time you needed extra money, you just said the taxes were higher for some specific reason, Right. Um, but there was a cost to that. Um, the cost to becoming very wealthy as a tax collector was the tr- betrayal of your people and the selling out to the Romans, right? You became a hated figure in the community. And so that's the case of all the tax collectors that we see in, in the New Testament of, of Zacchaeus and of Matthew. Like these are not people who are popular in their communities um, when, when the stories start. But it's interesting that John does not tell the tax collectors to stop being tax collectors, right? He didn't say that. Um, he doesn't say quit your jobs because you've got a, a corrupt profession. No, he basically says, look, collecting taxes is a legitimate thing that has to be done if it is done legally and done rightly. Um, and moreover, submission to the ruling authorities is in general a right thing to do, right? If they're calling you to do something that is expressly unbiblical, then that's one thing. But if the, if the ruling government is just coming in saying, no, we gotta have roads and, 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 and do things and whatever, and so you owe us some taxes, and that, that's okay. Um, you, we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, okay? And so John does not attack tax collecting as an institution, but he says, hey, you need to do this honestly. You need to only take what you are owed. And so, again, this attitude of repentance makes us walk humbly 
with our other, the other people in our community, right? It, it, it causes us to stop looking like those people out there in the community are there somehow to serve us, um, to benefit us, to, um, for us to use them to, um, to, to build up our own, our own lives and our own whatever, right? Um, instead, we walk humbly with these people. We don't, we don't treat them as objects. We treat them um, as fellow people on this journey. And so Philippians 2 do nothing out of selfish ambition or of conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Okay? And so I think that's the message that he's sending to the tax collectors, right? And then finally, the third group that we see is the soldiers come. The Roman, the Roman centurions are there, um, probably coming out into the wilderness to see what's going on, right? To see if this thing is turning into some sort of uh, uprising or something like that. But they get out there and they start hearing um, John preach. And so in verse 14, they ask, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, but be content with your wages. And so again, a Roman soldier had a whole lot of power behind them in the Roman Empire. Um, A lot like the tax collector. In fact, you might even just look at these two characters and say tax collectors and soldiers, it's it's functionally the same thing going on. But I think there is a little bit of a distinction there. Um, A soldier could, under threat of violence, pretty much do whatever they wanted as long as their commanding officers were okay with it, right? Um, And and there would be pretty much no consequences. And so that could include murder and and rape and theft and all kinds of things. And if if their commanding officer was not okay with it, then there might be consequences. But if he was was okay with it, then you could get away with a whole lot of things. And yet again... John does not say, hey, man, stop being soldiers. Soldiering is an illegitimate profession, right? Uh, He doesn't say that um, because soldiering is a legitimate thing to do. Um, In this case, the soldiers are acting as peacekeepers. They're acting as law enforcement. They're trying to um, keep law and order in this region. And just like those tax collectors, um, they have a legitimate role to play as long as they are doing it legitimately, and not trying to use that to extort people um, and to hurt people. And so being a soldier with a repentant heart will make them live in accordance with justice, right? That they will live justly among the people who they are there to serve. If you haven't picked up on it yet in, in the verbiage that I'm using, um, these three commands line up almost perfectly Um, with the very succinct command that we find in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where the prophet, speaking for God, says, What is good? What does the Lord require of you? Like, what does he want you to do? And the answer is, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Okay? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And so what I want you to notice something is this. Uh, John is not calling people to a new belief system, really. He's not calling them to a new ethic. He is not a revolutionary, all right? Um, In the way we use the words, he's more of a renaissance man, right? He is looking backwards to the truth that has always been there in God's word in the Old Testament and saying, we should actually start living this out, We should actually start doing this. This isn't a new message that I'm telling you. It's the same stuff that people have been, the people of God have been saying since the beginning, which makes sense, right? Because God doesn't change. 
His word doesn't change. His character doesn't change. His ethic doesn't change. Repentance doesn't change. These things have always been the case in, in God's economy. And so John is doing, really, what every single Old Testament prophet in the entire Bible has always done. He is calling people to turn from their sin and actually start faithfully living out their beliefs. Okay? Now, if that was the end of the passage, then we would go, cool. Uh, it's, it sounds like more of the same. We still have a problem doing it. We should just start living up to this thing. And that's what John is calling us to do. But that's not the end of the passage. Okay? Something else happens with what the people are talking to him about. Because, again, we should recognize this. In some ways, every single belief system in the world, every single moral code in the world, regardless of what religion or whatever, every single one of them calls their people to repentance in some way. Right? Like every belief system says there are certain things you're not doing that you should be. So stop doing the things you're not, you're not supposed to be doing and start doing the things you're supposed to be doing. Right? That is the nature of all the world. Okay? Of every belief system in the world. And so remember, John's message of repentance, though, isn't the message. That sounds weird. John's way that he is preaching is not the way itself. Okay? John's message is preparing the way for the way. He is what he is doing is not the end in itself. He is preparing for the coming of the Lord. Okay? It clears the way. It is not the way. So, again, think about that. If we're just talking about this is this is part of the reason why when we have when we talk about our faith and we talk about it only on moralistic terms, only about stop doing bad things and start doing good things. If that's all we ever talk about to people, the whole rest of the world goes, my religion tells me to do that, too. Why should I pick Christianity over Islam or Hinduism or anything else? It's not any different. My religion tells me not to do things. Your religion tells you not to do things. Oftentimes, it tells us not to do the same things, right? And so why should we change? Why should we believe anything you're saying? If Christianity is just a moral improvement project, then John's preaching is nothing special, although it's probably something we should still listen to, okay? But the deal is, is this isn't the end of the story, And as the people begin to listen to John, they start wondering among themselves, right? Is this guy the Messiah? Is John the Messiah that is to come? Is he the one who we've been waiting for? And is this message that he is telling us, is this the good news, right? Is this the gospel of of this, this message of repentance? Is this the thing that we've been waiting for for so long? And guess what John says? John says, no, it's not. Verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. The reality is, is that the way, the real message, is that Jesus is coming. Repentance is key, okay? It is a necessary precursor, right? It is a necessary preparing of the way. You cannot skip repentance and go straight to Jesus, 
Okay, and that sounds a little weird because you go, wait a minute, isn't Jesus the, you have to have both of these things. That's why so often in the scriptures you find them paired. Repent and believe, repent and believe. You can't separate them out, right? They have, they're two sides of the same coin. Um, we, we have to repent first, but that is not the news. That is not the good news. That is not the new news, okay? The new news is that Jesus is coming, The Messiah is coming. He is the peace that's been missing the whole time and that mankind and the people of Israel have been waiting for for all of human history. And so, again, we have been emphasizing throughout the book of Luke a lot so far about how Jesus is like us. Right about how Jesus is is human, how he's born in simple circumstances, how all these different, he grew up just like us, right? How much Jesus is like us. But John comes at this point to just sort of remind us and say, he is like us in all the important ways, but also he is completely different. Um, he is a person who's the straps of his sandals I am not even worthy to untie. He is above us, and he is beyond us, and he is over us. And when Jesus comes, he is not just going to baptize with water, although obviously we still do that. But the baptism that he brings is in the Spirit. And it is a baptism that fundamentally changes who we are. Right? It changes our relationship to God. It changes our identities. It changes our eternal destinies, in fact. So much to the point that he says, how you respond to this coming Messiah will determine whether you are part of the harvest that is safely brought into the barns or whether you are part of the chaff that is blown away and burned with fire. That's how central... The coming of the Messiah is. He is the pivot that your entire life and eternity is going to rest on. Okay? And so that doesn't negate John's message of the repentance. Just like we said last week, it is necessary. You cannot skip repentance. It is the necessary precursor to coming to God in faith. But it is not the way. It is the preparation for the way. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And so let's... Turn our hearts to repentance. Let's focus our attention on the way that that repentance is to be lived out in, in, in terms of bearing fruit. But all the while knowing that repentance is itself clearing the way for the life of faith in Jesus Christ to be worked out in our lives. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.